And hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Frazier and Dieter's Business Beat. I'm John Ray alongside Roger Lesby. Roger. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Great to see you again. Thank you. Another great uh, show today we've got here. And you brought a guest from your firm or a colleague from your firm, I should say. I did. Colette, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Colette Barco, and I work along with Roger Lesby at the Frazier and Dieter office in Alpharetta in Avalon. Okay, and uh, talk about what you do. Are you tax or what? I'm in tax, and I um, have had about six years' experience. I've worked with uh, businesses and individuals, a lot of pass-through entities, and then work on those partners' individual returns as well. Um, some real estate and professional types of businesses as well. Outstanding. Colette, glad to have you here. Glad to be here. And let's get to Dan Kent. Dan is with Kent and Risley. Risley. Risley, sorry. Okay. Kent, Kent and Risley. Uh, welcome, Dan. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for being here. Uh, before we get to Dan, though, I, re- I want to remind folks that Frazier and Dieter, which uh, brings you business beat, Uh, every month, is an award-winning national CPA and advisory firm with deep technical expertise and an even deeper dedication to their clients. Their CPAs and advisors believe in investing in relationships to make a difference. For more information, go to FraserDieter.com. Dan Kent from Kent and Risley. Thanks Grizzly. for being with us. Grizzly, I'm going to get it right before this show's Rhymes over. with Grizzly. Okay, Gri- uh, Grizzly. Yeah. Oh, wow, for a law firm, that's a good, that's a good go. rhyme, that's right? right? That's what uh, we part- like. Particularly the work you do. So <laughs> w- with that opening, talk about the work that you do. Very good. So thank you for this opportunity. It's great to meet you all um, and to have this platform to talk about what we do and maybe help some of your listeners uh, along the way. Uh, Kent and Risley is an intellectual property law firm, and intellectual property is something that maybe some of your listeners don't fully uh, understand or recognize as to what that is. But basically what we do is we protect companies' technologies and trademarks, and we do that through the use of patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and contracts like nondisclosure agreements or NDAs. Um, we are a litigation firm, so our purpose is to enforce those rights or to defend against enforcement of those rights. Um, we are not really a transactional firm. We don't get a patent, but we can advise people on their strategy, their overall plan for in- obtaining and enforcing patents and trademarks as well as copyrights and trade secrets. Um, but we're really an enforcement firm. We do a lot of licensing. We do a lot of litigation. Um, so those are the, the primary focuses of what we do. Uh Dan, is it unusual to have those two separated like that, to have, uh, I guess, the acquisition of, of, the, of patents separate from the litigation around those patents? It is somewhat unusual, although uh, I think in our experience, what, the reason we started the firm was we found that it was an, an important distinction to make because many of our patent prosecution colleagues, and pro- patent prosecution is the process of obtaining a patent from the patent office, Many of our colleagues that enjoy that work and do that work don't like to go to court, don't like to stand up and make arguments in court, don't like to argue to juries, haven't done that much. Um, We're trial lawyers. We're trial lawyers at heart. We've been doing it for 30 years. And so we like to go to court and enforce those rights, defend against assertions of those rights. That's what we're about. 
And so many of our cases will come from patent prosecution firms, folks who get the patent and have the client relationship, but don't really have the wherewithal to go to court to enforce those rights. Um, we think we're fairly unique in the market in that we focus on litigation and only litigation. There are firms that do both. We think it's a better model to keep it separate, and so that's what we do. So a really basic question, and I'm good at asking very basic <laughs> questions, uh, why protect technology? Well, technology is the key to the economy these days, and depending on your company, you're going to have different types of technology that you need to protect. The technology may be as simple as a trademark or a domain name. It may be as complex as the system that, that uh, makes your product work. Uh, it may be as, as overarching as a patent on your primary product. Uh, if you don't protect those things, people can and will rip you off. It's the nature of the marketplace. It's the nature of, of, of society that um, if, if you have a good, successful product, people are going to want to copy it and make money at it, try to undercut your price, try to take away your, your clientele and your customers. If you don't protect it, depending on the type of, of intellectual property we're talking about, if you don't take proper steps to protect it, you can lose those rights. Trademark rights is a primary example. If you don't enforce your trademark rights, then they become public domain, and you can lose the ability to identify yourself to your clientele. If you don't protect your, your patent rights, the, the rights in your inventions, then those fall into the public domain, and anybody can copy what you've spent time and money developing uh, and just compete with you directly in the marketplace with your same product. So given the nature of the economy today, uh, protection of technology is a critical aspect for almost every business. Now, Dan, you and your partner, Steve Worsley, who I've known for a long time, uh, you made the conscious decision to locate your offices up here in the Alpharetta area. And, of course, as you know, we have over 900 technology companies sitting up here in Alpharetta. We heard Tell that, us a little yes. bit about that. <laughs> well, that's the primary reason that we did that. We both lived up in this area um, and have for a long time. But we also looked around at the economy and saw the growth and development in Alpharetta and felt like this was a, a great place to locate for the type of work that we do. Uh, many clients that we meet come from Alpharetta uh, or the surrounding areas, even some north of, of Alpharetta. Uh, but the, the fact that Alpharetta is becoming a hub uh, of technology and of small business growth and business incubation, that to us said this is a, a great place for us to be. And it's close enough to the federal courts in Atlanta. We can get there in the middle of the day without too much trouble. Uh, I try to avoid going down first thing in the morning if I can, but um, if you have to, you have to. So it's a prime location. It's, it's good for where the growth is, and it's also accessible to where we need to be for the courts and for bar association events and things like that. And then talk to us or talk to our listeners a little bit about the length of your cases and how long some of these cases can actually be. They really do vary. Patent cases especially can be very, very long. They can last three, five, I've seen 10, 12 years uh, from beginning to end. Uh, the, the really long ones are probably the exception. Those are the ones that are really hard fought, have an awful lot of damages uh, at stake. So both sides are highly motivated to fight every battle they can fight. And often a case will go up on appeal and come back maybe once or twice. 
Sometimes there'll be a challenge to the patent itself in the patent office, which will put the litigation on hold for maybe a year, year and a half. Um, so there are a lot of moving parts in patent litigation that can cause it to last a very, very long time. Other cases, <clears throat> excuse me, other cases are, are shorter and, and will settle very quickly. If you've got a, a good case with a modest damages ask, then maybe that case will settle six months to a year, something like that. Copyright and trademark cases are, are similar to that. You can often settle those in a, an earlier sort of time frame than many, many years. But you never know. I've had trademark cases that have lasted five or six years as well. Uh, just depends on the legal issues and really the, the amount of money at stake and the, and the decision that both sides have to make about, am I really going to fight about everything? Often the answer is yes, but not always, not always. Yeah, let, let me follow up on that point if I can. Dan, as we're speaking with Dan Kent, with Kent and Risley, so, uh, and I did get the name right you this did. time. So, so uh, how do you counsel a client about sue versus not sue, right? I mean, and what's at stake and what, whether it's worth it or not? Well, it really is a cost-benefit analysis, and ultimately it's a business decision that the client has to make because... Um, they need to understand at the front end, and we try to make sure they understand at the front end, the costs involved and the time involved, the potential upside and the potential risks. Uh, every piece of litigation carries all of those things. And so you need to have a, a conversation with the client, very uh, deep conversation about exactly what's at stake, why they, what they want to accomplish with the litigation. That's the first question I ask. Why do you want to sue? Because often they'll come to you and say, somebody is infringing on my patent. We need to sue them, and sometimes you just need to ask them to step back for a moment, and let me ask you some questions. Why do you want to sue? What's happening? What's going on? What do you want to accomplish, and how best can we do that? Sometimes we can do that with a pre-suit letter and maybe a negotiated license beforehand. It depends, again, on, on the ask, uh, how much money is being asked for, what other things are being asked for, and will the other side cooperate? It takes two to tango in any license or settlement agreement, and if you don't have the other side cooperating, you can't reach a settlement. But once the client gets past the the cost of litigation, the time consumption on both the attorney's part and the client's part, and they decide it's worth it for them to sue, then that's when you push forward with the litigation budget and, and timelines and deciding where you can sue and all of the nitty-gritty bits about how to litigate a patent case. Um, but really it comes down to what's the client trying to accomplish and sitting down with the client to try to figure out what's the best way to accomplish that. Another example might be a trademark case where a competitor is using a mark for a product that's very close to your own product. Uh, you've got to do something. And so the question is, well, what do you do? And it really depends on the facts. If it's very, very close and it's, it's a direct competitor and they're causing direct harm in the marketplace – then you might take a very aggressive approach and seek a preliminary injunction in federal court and try to hit them very quickly, very hard. Um, if it's just a closer case, or a less close case, I should say, it's a close case but not so strong that you feel like you have to make, take immediate action, then maybe a letter would be in order uh, and see if you can get them to change the name or alter the name or alter how they're marketing something in order to avoid litigation uh, at all. Uh, many of our cases are resolved before litigation with that sort of letter-writing approach. Uh, but it really depends on the nature of the infringement, the nature of the defendant, the nature of your own client, 
Uh, all of those things have to be taken into account to decide what the better approach is. And there may even be other ways to, to uh, address this. For example, if it's a domain name dispute, there are procedures in, in place to address domain name disputes. Uh, the World Intellectual Property Organization, or WIPO, has a procedure that uh, is for domain name arbitration. So there may be other avenues to deal with. There also may be things you can do at the Patent and Trademark Office, either on the patent side or on the trademark side, to gain leverage or to otherwise try to resolve some of these disputes. So it really is a fact-specific analysis, and it's not something that you can answer easily for every case. It really depends on the specific facts of the case and the parties involved. And what about the discovery process? How has that changed over the years, especially with uh, technology? Well, it has, in my 30 years almost of practice, that's probably the thing that has changed the most, both for good and for ill. Um, the good part is um, now it's much easier to review documents that are produced. We have electronic tools that automatically do um, OCR, optical character recognition uh, functions on the documents so you can easily keyword search the documents. You can easily scroll through them electronically without having to dig through literally hundreds of pallets of hundreds of boxes each, which I have done uh, in a dusty warehouse. Um, those days are gone, thank goodness. Um, now it's all electronic on your computer, on a laptop, um, you know, sitting on your couch sometimes. Um, so the review piece is much easier than it ever was. The problem, the difficulty, though, is that now there is so much more electronic discovery to be produced. Think about every email you've ever sent. Think about every text you've ever sent. If any of those are relevant to a case, they all become discoverable, and they all need to be produced in an appropriate case if they're relevant to the subject matter that's being litigated. So while it's easier to review a lot of stuff, it's also harder in that you now have a lot more volume, a lot more documents that go into the, the top part of the funnel that you have to sift through to figure out, is this relevant or not? Do I need to produce it or not? And then if you do, the other side has to figure out, well, is this anything that, that is relevant to my case? Do I need to, to figure this out? So there's more to review, but it's easier to review it once you get to the reviewing process. Um, what many people don't fully understand when they talk about wanting to litigate something is the, the amount of time that it will take them as the plaintiff to collect their own documents and the, the amount of effort that it will take from them and their people to work with the lawyers to make sure that the lawyers have what they need to prosecute the case as well as what they're going to have to produce when the other side asks them for documents. Um, so we try to make sure that the front end, the people understand, you know, if, if you want to do this, great, we're all in for it, but you need to understand it's going to take quite a bit of time and effort on your part as well. You can't just hand it to us and let us go necessarily. Um, some cases maybe that's true, but in most cases that's not true. And then what about venue decisions for you? Because, you know, obviously what you deal with, if, if something is going to go to court, you, you, you've already done your discovery, uh, some of these are very technical in nature. And so how would that affect the, uh, the venue decisions that you're making? Well, let's talk about patent cases first because the rules recently changed just in 2017. Um, the Supreme Court issued a ruling called T.C. Heartland versus Kraft. And in that case, the court held that what we all thought were the rules in venue for venue of patent cases, we were all wrong 
for 30 years, um, which was an interesting thing to wake up to uh, because we had all been taught that you could file a lawsuit for patent infringement pretty much anywhere an infringing product was sold, and that had been the law since about 1991. Um, But in 2017, the Supreme Court said, no, you had it all wrong that whole time. And now you can only sue in either the state of incorporation of the defendant or where the defendant has an actual physical place of business um, and, uh, and also sells the product or otherwise has a connection to that venue. So uh, now we're much more limited to, what, to, to venues than we used to be. Um, as a result, you see cases that used to be brought in East Texas, which was thought of as a, as a very popular patent-friendly venue for patent plaintiffs, those cases are now being brought in Delaware or in other venues like California where, where companies are located. Um, the bottom line is we have to do a lot more upfront analysis about where can we sue uh, as opposed to before we could just sue where the client is or where we think we'll get a good result or something like that. Now we've got to figure out, well, what are the options? And if I've got multiple defendants, maybe I've got to bring separate cases. So the patent law venue question is much more difficult than it used to be. For trademark and copyright cases, it's a little easier because that, at least that law hasn't changed, so we're used to dealing with that. Um, you still have to figure out where you can get personal jurisdiction over the defendant, but you have a little more freedom on picking a venue. Uh, but, but again, for all of our cases, deciding where to sue is a much more complicated thing than it was just a couple of years ago. Uh, we're still trying to figure that out. Uh, for us, I think we're finding more cases get filed in Delaware than in East Texas because many, many companies are incorporated in Delaware. Um, we're also seeing more cases spread out throughout the country wherever companies happen to be located. Um, we're getting ready to file a case in the Midwest for a client. Just We would never have brought that case in the Midwest before because that court just hasn't dealt with patent cases very often. But I think every court's going to have to learn to deal with patent cases now more than they used to because the law has now decided we have to distribute them to where the companies are. Um, so we're, we're figuring it out, but it, it's a challenging analysis now, and it's not the, the simple analysis that it used to be, unfortunately. Folks, you're listening to Business Beat, presented by Frazier and Dieter, and we're fortunate to have Dan Kent. He's with Kent and Risley talking about uh, technology and protecting that technology. So w- we've got startups that are uh, listeners to uh, our show, and maybe what we need to do for those folks is back up a little bit and talk about the different ways to protect the technology that they work so hard on because there's there's it's not just about patents necessarily, right? That's absolutely right. And sometimes a patent isn't the right thing to do. It really depends on the company and the product or service that they're selling. Um, and, and with the current state of the law for patents, it's more expensive than perhaps it used to be to enforce a patent. So you even need to think about it a little more carefully perhaps than you did five or ten years ago. Um, Let's start with what the different types of intellectual property protection are. Um, Patents, people generally, I think, know what a patent is. It it covers an invention. It covers an idea. It has to be something new, not obvious, something that didn't happen before. And there's a process you go through to disclose that patent to the patent office. And in exchange, after some back and forth, you get the opportunity to have a patent with 
your name on it and an issue date, and it's good for 20 years from the date that you filed the application. Um, the, the social contract is essentially that you disclose the invention to the world in exchange for the exclusive right to use the patent for 20 years. So that's the bargain. Uh, the contrast to a patent is a trade secret. Now, a trade secret is something that you don't disclose to the public, you don't disclose to anybody, because if you do, it's no longer a trade secret. But if you keep it secret, like the formula for Coca-Cola is the, the right. common example people use, they've never gotten a patent on that, because if they did, they would have to disclose it to the patent office, and after 20 years, it would be public. They don't want to do that. Instead, they keep it as a trade secret. Now, a trade secret enjoys both state and federal statutory protection. There's a recent federal statute that was enacted um, to allow a federal cause of action for trade secret misappropriation, whereas before it was all a patchwork of state statutes. Now we have state and federal statutes. But basically they're all uh, similar in that the, the central idea is you have to exercise reasonable diligence to keep your secret secret. In other words, you have to have it password protected. You have to limit access to it. You have to maybe keep it under lock and key. If it's electronic, you've got to have it password protected. You've got to take reasonable steps to keep it secret. And so anytime it gets disclosed, it has to be under a contractual non-disclosure agreement, and it has to be limited in scope to only those people who really need to use it. As long as you do those things, if somebody tries to steal it, then you have a strong case, a strong cause of action, to protect that secret as a trade secret. Uh, but you can see the contrast. It's really the opposite of patents. If you want to disclose it to the world and get 20 years of exclusivity, um, then you can use a patent. If instead you want to go to all the trouble, and it's not easy, of maintaining secrecy, then you go the trade secret route. So those are the two basic types of, of intellectual property that deal with inventions and ideas, formulas, things like that. The now, other let, types of intellectual property. Let I'm me sorry, ask a ahead. quick question about yeah. trade secrets. So sure. I guess the downside of a trade secret is somebody else can come along and stumble into what you have, and they're out there on the market, and you have no protection. That's exactly right. Okay. That's, and, that, and that's the basic reason, yeah. one, one of the basic reasons, to go patent versus trade secret. If you think somebody else could get this and figure this out, then it's lost its value as soon as somebody else comes up with it. You know, a common example of that, that people may remember from their history classes is when Edison was inventing the light bulb. There were other people also working on the light bulb, and there was kind of a public competition going on uh, between the folks. And there was even litigation uh, for some period of time about who invented what, and that ultimately was decided in the courts. Um, we don't remember the other guys because they were second. But because of that protection, the, the, the inventor who got the patent had 20 years of exclusivity. Trade secret would have been of no use in that situation. <clears throat> so you know, moving on to the other types of intellectual property, um, there are trademarks, which many of the, the startup companies will be dealing with because they're trying to s establish their brand. They're trying to market uh, their goods and services, and they're trying to distinguish themselves from others. Trademark is essentially any word, symbol, device, um, anything like that that is used to identify the source of a good or a service. Um, so, you know, the Home Depot is a word trademark that identifies uh, home improvement goods and services. They've also trademarked the color orange. So orange on tools is now a registered trademark of Home Depot 
um, and they can protect and prevent others from using that color orange on tools. Um, there's been some controversy about whether that ought to be allowed, but it is. Uh, some other interesting ones are the, the tones for NBC. You know, when, when NBC does a channel break, you hear the three uh, tones, um, musical tones. The, those are protected, NBC claims. I'm not sure how challenged that has been yet. but um, So you get the idea that there can be other things. And Harley-Davidson has also tried to trademark the sound of its engine, which I think is an interesting mm. angle, that the particular sound of a Harley can somehow identify the source of the motorcycle versus someone else. Uh, but trademark is basically anything that identifies the good or service. So for a startup company, um, like a small tech company or young tech company, um, Choosing a good trademark and protecting it, registering it with the Patent and Trademark Office, uh, those are all very important things to make sure that they can build their brand and identify themselves, distinguish themselves from others that they compete against. Copyright is a kind of separate thing. Copyright protects original works of authorship, but that includes software. So a lot of startups may have copyright protection in apps if they're doing app development for your phone. Uh, or software to, to run other things on a computer. So they need to think about copyright protection for that. The source code might also be subject to trade secret protection, so they need to make a decision about which goes where. Uh, but, but those are, are things that can be in the copyright realm, as well as um, thing, if you're selling a service, sometimes you can copyright your, your sales materials, uh, presentation materials, um, things of that nature. The, the last category is more the contractual one that I think many of your listeners will be familiar with, and that's the standard non-disclosure agreement, or NDA. Um, and that helps protect some of the others, like it can protect trade secret, it can protect patents before they're filed. Um, patents need to be kept secret until the application is filed. So you can use an NDA to help protect, or a non-disclosure agreement, to help protect those ideas before they get out into the wild and you lose control of them. Um, but those are the basic types of, of intellectual property, and uh, you know it's funny watching television and you see, or movies, and, and you see these legal terms used in the movies and on TV, and often very incorrectly. People talk about trademarking an idea, or they talk about um, copywriting an invention, um, and I just cringe, as do my other intellectual property lawyer friends. But most people don't; under, they just think it's all it's all IP somehow. And, and that's probably fair because they don't live in the world that I live in. But once you get it to brass tacks and you're figuring out what to do, it is important to understand the distinction and talk to a professional that can help you sort of walk through what it is you need to do based on your particular situation. Now, Dan, before we came on the air, you were mentioning some of the issues with Google. Uh, maybe you can talk to our listeners about that. Yeah, one of the more interesting trademark issues that is occurring right now has to do with keyword advertising. And as folks around this table probably know, uh, any small business that does business over the Internet or wants to advertise over the Internet uh, is presented with the opportunity to buy AdWords or keywords on Google or other search engines, Google being by far the biggest, so we'll just stick with that one. And basically what that means is you can bid uh, on, on various different search terms that if somebody puts that search term into a Google search bar – your business, your website, will appear higher up on the search results, uh, depending on how much you pay and various other things. Um, the interesting trademark question has arisen, though, when 
let's say you want to bid on a competitor's trademark so that if anybody searches for com- my competitor in, in their Google search box, I want to appear on their search results. Can I do that? Well, so far, the courts have held that, yes, you can. There's nothing wrong, nothing uh, that is likely to cause confusion, which is the, the standard for trademark infringement. Nothing confusing inherently about just bidding on a competitor's trademark. The tricky part is, do you bid it in such a way that the ad appears to be your competitor's ad before they click to call or before they click to be transferred to another page? Um, The courts haven't really dealt with that issue directly. Um, There are some interesting cases sort of gurgling through the courts right now, and I've handled a couple of them that have resolved early, so we don't really know what the guidance would be. But it raises some interesting questions. So think of McDonald's and Burger King, you know, two two burger joints. Say McDonald's wants to bid on Burger King as an ad word. Um, They can do that, and the courts so far at least have said that that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But what they can't do is make the the link or the, the ad within the Google search results look like it's a Burger King ad. So the question is, do they have to do anything specific to distinguish themselves? Do they have to use McDonald's in the ad? An unanswered question as of right now. We don't know. They, we know they can't do anything affirmative to make it look like they're Burger King, but do they have to do anything affirmative at all? We don't know yet. Um, so these are some interesting questions that have come up and are likely to get small businesses in trouble, and I've, I've had some litigation over that in the last couple of years, as well as a number of nasty demand letters and cease and desist letters going back and forth, making accusations about this practice. But the, the law is a little slow to catch up to the technology often, uh, and, and this is one of those areas where it's a little slow to catch up. So it's hard to say exactly where this will end up. But I think some reasonable guidance for most businesses would be just don't do anything that is really going to confuse the issue. So it's probably okay to bid on a competitor AdWord, but it's not okay, probably unwise, to make it look like the ad is your competitors, if that makes sense. Fascinating discussion with uh, Dan Kent, uh, Kent and Risley. Dan, now's your chance to brag a little bit, okay? Talk about maybe some some noteworthy victories that you've had uh, uh, in representing the clients you represent. Well, I'll, I'll pick up the one we just talked about. Um, I was representing was actually a, um, a service uh, client, and they were bidding on AdWords, competitor AdWords, and the competitor didn't like it. Um, but we had to basically prove to the other side, first their lawyer and then the, his client, that what we were doing was okay and that what we were doing didn't cause any confusion. And ultimately, we were able to do that without having to go all the way through trial. And so we got a good resolution in that case without everybody having to to spend all the money to get it resolved. But I think we got to a good resolution that everybody was, you know, maybe not happy with, but equally unhappy, shall we say, uh, which is often a good result. Um, some other examples that we're working on right now, uh, let me talk about one other one, I guess, on the defensive side that we just resolved last year, um, represented a client in Los Angeles that had um, some really interesting uh, media case technology. So when you buy a CD or a DVD, um, you know, it comes in a case. And a lot of big companies, uh, entertainment companies or, or even companies with large employee events, 
will often want to do something special with that case and put maybe a video screen on it uh, or put some secondary media in it to play music when you open it, things like that. So it's a kind of an interesting business, and it, it um, is often used around award show time, like the Grammys or the Oscars, in the giveaway boxes that they have for, for guests. So, um, but the technology is very interesting, and the, the client had, had licensed a patent from an inventor um, some time back and ultimately decided that the patent wasn't valid, so stopped dealing with the license but kept making the product. The inventor comes back and sues, so we're defending the company, and we have to basically convince the other side that the patent isn't really valid and it's not worth what you say it is. And ultimately, that, that's another one where we were able to work with the other side's lawyer and come to a resolution with a mediator's help uh, before we had to, to go to trial. Uh, but though, again, that's a success in our book because we save the client hundreds of thousands of dollars in litigation costs and trial costs and the risks that they, they could possibly have lost. We think we ultimately would have won, but we were able to get it resolved without having to throw the dice and, and take that risk. And so those to us are, are gratifying uh, as, as the wins are. Well, maybe not quite as gratifying as the wins are. We like the wins a lot. Uh, <laughs> and they're a lot of fun because of all the effort that goes into them. But we're, we're happy when the client saves some money as well. Good stuff. Uh, Dan Kent, Kent and Risley. So, Dan, for those that would like more information, maybe they're angry and need some help uh, in, in court, uh, how do they get in touch with you? Well, we're located in Alpharetta, just north of North Point Mall. Um, but you can go to our website, which is www.kentrisley, that's K-E-N-T-R-I-S-L-E-Y.com. Uh, Dan, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it very much. Another great guest here on Business Beat with Frazier and Dieter. And, folks, Frazier and Dieter is indeed an award-winning national CPA and advisory firm with deep technical expertise and an even deeper dedication to their clients. Their CPAs and advisors believe in investing in relationships to make a difference. For more information, go to FraserDieter.com. Roger, another great guest today. Well, thank you, John. Dan, thank you so much for coming out. Uh, we enjoyed it, and uh, great to hear from you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So let's do it again next month. You want to, Roger? We will. Okay, terrific. Folks, this has been, this has been Business Beat brought to you by Frazier and Dieter. Join us next time. I'm John Ray. Thanks again.